Hey, Parker. Hey, Carrie. How's it going? It's going well. And today, we're going to be doing a little turnaround. Uh, last month's podcast, we talked about the creative life and a bit about my new projects. But this month, I wanted to continue our conversation about the creative life, the writer's life, and the red thread and themes that appeared in your work. Themes that are right at the heart of the growing edge. So welcome to the growing edge. I'm Carrie Dewcomer. And I'm Parker Palmer. To the words and habit between us And to us and how we live between the words Well, with uh, our other guests that have come on the program, we always do a little bit of background. And though folks probably know about you, Parker, because they're listening to the podcast and, and a bit familiar with your work. I'm going to go ahead and, and do a little background. Um, Parker is a writer and a teacher and activist, a founder and senior partner emeritus at the Center for Courage and Renewal. He's written 10 books, including Let Your Life Speak, The Courage to Teach, A Hidden Wholeness, Healing the Heart of Democracy, and his most recent book, The Brink of Everything, Grace, Gravity, and Getting Old. Uh, He holds a PhD in sociology from University of California, Berkeley, and has 13 honorary doctorates, just in case you're counting, um, and a national survey of 10 thousand educators. Parker was named one of the 30 most influential senior leaders in higher education and one of the 10 key agenda setters for the past decade. He's garnered countless awards, including the William Rainey Harper Award. An Utney reader named him one of the 25 visionaries on its annual list of people who are changing the world. He lives in the Berkeley of the Midwest, Madison, Wisconsin, with his wonderful wife, Sharon. And um, Parker is a writer's writer, a poet's poet, and an authentic touchstone for those of us endeavoring to live the undivided life. He's a prophet for the better, kinder, more just world. And I'm really grateful to tears to call him my friend and creative colleague. So welcome, Parker Palmer. Well, thank you, Carrie. I mean, I'm totally shocked and surprised that I'm the focus today, of course. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, to the podcast listeners, it will be evident that I'm blushing. But I'm <laughs> really looking forward to this conversation with you. It's always such great fun to talk. Well, we had such a lovely conversation last month, you know, kind of exploring uh, creativity and the creative life, uh, whether that's uh, in a uh, a medium like music or writing, or whether that's creative parenting, creative educating, creative living, the creative and um, and thoughtful life. So, mm-hmm. so I felt like this is such a wonderful way to continue the conversation. So let's maybe start with some history. Um, I read in one of your books, "Let Your Life Speak," that your very first book was actually a book on aerodynamics. Yes, um, I'm sure that will surprise people who know me for my work in spirituality or community or education or democracy, these other subjects. But yes, it was. I wrote a book on aerodynamics. Um, When I was a kid, I was a great aviation fan, as as a lot of boys and, and girls are. 
Um, the whole idea of flying just struck me as a wonderful escapist fantasy, you know, and I spent a lot of time building model airplanes, flying them, crashing them, uh, usually, um, and also putting together little tiny books about them. I, I would, you know, cut in half, eight and a half by 11 paper. I would put some words there with my dad's typewriter. I would uh, draw some illustrations about airfoils and how they work, how planes stay in the air, so forth. I was just fascinated with that stuff. And then I'd staple those together and call it a book, probably 10 pages long. And for a long time, I thought what I wanted to do really on through high school, I thought I wanted to be a pilot. Um, but eventually it dawned on me that really what I wanted to do was write books. And that's, that's what I had been doing from the beginning. Um, and, and it's, you know, in Let Your Life Speak, I wrote about those childhood clues to vocation that we should help each other remember. Parents can help kids remember. Grandparents can help grandkids remember. Things that kids are drawn toward at a very early, innocent age which prove years later to be real clues uh, to a much longer and substantial vocation. And so at least that, that was true for me. And, and that's, that's where writing really, really began for me in, in, the, in the privacy of my little attic garret apartment, as it were, <laughs> in the home in which I grew up on the North Shore of Chicago, writing these little books. And I love that, uh, how you wrote about that in Let Your Life Speak. That really um, moved me, that whole concept of uh, there are things that we lean into that we love for no reason other than that we love them, that mm -hmm. resonate with us, that we lose track of time doing. And there's often clues there. There's clues. There, there are. And I, you know, I think it, that points to a practical thing that folks who are in relation to little kids can do, which is to actually make notes, keep records of what those early, I call them tropisms, were, you know, the things that draw a kid's attention and engagement and energies, and also the things in life that kind of push them back, that they, where the places they don't want to go. Yeah. Because years later, those can be helpful clues to the child, now grown, um, about the, the very confusing adult question of what am I here to do? What is my vocation? And you were saying that, you know, you, this was something that you just kind of leaned into as a child, but you really, uh, you didn't grow up in a family of writers. And no, I artists. didn't. I, I was the first person in my family to go to college. Um, and and my, both of my parents did wonderfully well in life with high school degrees. And so I've never had any illusions about higher education being necessary to, to a good life. Um, my grandparents were skilled craftsmen, blue-collar workers. And um, I think sometimes higher education can actually take you farther away from a good life until you recover your right mind and realize that you are not your credentials. You are mm. you, are you and reclaim your true self. But yeah, I never fancied myself to be a writer um, or, you know, any kind of intellectual. And, and the truth is, Carrie, that at every stage of my educational journey, from my bachelor's degree, through my master's degree, through my PhD, 
I felt fraudulent in those places of mm. higher learning. Wow. All good colleges and, and all places where I did pretty well, but um, I just didn't feel like I belonged. I didn't feel like this was my ecosystem. And so my, I think my writing really began um, in my mid-20s, not with uh, the idea of authorship, but just with the idea that I needed to take a step beyond journaling and organize the thoughts and experiences I was having in a way that might be illuminating for me um, about the, what, what path I was really meant to be on. So I was writing a lot to myself. I mean, I sometimes call my early writing memos to self. Ah. And my, my, first, my first book was really an accidental book that, that happened because I had a file drawer full of essays by that time. Um, and it sort of came together because of, I don't know, divine intervention or something, the grace mm. of meeting a couple of people who helped birth my first book. And I remember vividly holding that book in my hands when it finally came out. That was a book called The Promise of Paradox that came out, I think, in 1979. Um, and, and thinking, oh my gosh, this is amazing. I actually can write a book. I had no idea. <laughs> <laughs> but, but that was, you know, we get along with a little help from our friends. And as I said, some strangers came along and uh, helped bring that book into being. So it's been an interesting journey for me, often writing from the margins rather than from the center. Because early on, after I got my Ph.D., I also left academia. Um, yeah. I became a community organizer in Washington, D.C. in 1969, working on issues of racial justice, rather than go directly into the professorships that were being offered to me, or the tenure-track opportunities that were being offered to me. And I've, I've just always felt more comfortable on the margins than at the center. I like that, that you've been writing from the margins. And it seems to me also that, you know, you're writing, you do write on a variety of topics, um, but the, there are threads that kind of go through it. And, and, and you're writing also coming out of your own personal experience and your own personal questions. You know, I think you've told me before that you were born baffled. And I, I kind of always get, get uh, I always grin with that. I was born baffled and that's why I, that's why I keep uh, keep writing. Yeah, that's that's true. And over the years, I've said that often enough that people have actually sent me bumper stickers they have made <laughs> that, say, that say "born born baffled." And were it not for the fact that my wife Sharon will not let me put bumper stickers on our car, my, my car would be plastered with those suckers. But yeah, I was I I do feel that I came into the world. Uh, in 1939 in, at St. Luke's Hospital in Chicago, which no longer exists. Um, although I sometimes uh, perpetuate the myth that I actually arose from Lake Michigan in February of 1939 <laughs> on a half shell. <laughs> but I, 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 you know, there are mornings when I think that might be true. But uh, in truth, I, w I was born, they slapped some air into me in the delivery room, and I think I just looked around and said, what's this all about? <laughs> like kind of the, wait, what? Uh, response that you sometimes hear today. And writing, you know, became a way for me 
of peeling back the next layer of bafflement and the next layer of bafflement about all kinds of subjects. Um, the things that I was free to write about um, because I was on the margins. I, I wasn't yeah. in, at the heart of an institution with someone telling me, if you want to get promoted, you have to write about this rather than that or that or that or that because all the that's have always interested me and um, it's been a, a wonderful freedom um, to be on the margins despite the risks of being there or the price you pay, may pay for being there. It's been a wonderful freedom to be able to, to follow my own North Star. I've always loved, you know, in terms of this writing from the margins, you have such a wonderful ability to, to get a, uh, this, this beautiful large system picture, you know, like the put things together uh, and put things together in a way that I might not have thought of it before. You know, um, to explain it in a way I hadn't thought of it before, mm. and so you you do this wonderful thing of 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 creating uh, a wonderful frame for the whole, and at the same time, those pieces come out of your uh, deep and personal experience. Mm. Um, mm -hmm. And I've always uh, appreciated the balance of that, being mm. able to look at something, uh, the forest and the tree. You know. Well, well, thank you. That means a lot to me. Um, and it rings true to my intentions anyway. I, I'm, I'm the last person to know whether I really have, you know, pulled them off. But um, I, I think you're touching, Carrie, on a piece that's important to me, and I know it is also to you. Um, I've always been fascinated with, speaking of red threads running through my work, with how the inner and the outer relate yes. to one another. Yeah. Because it, it seems clear to me that until we bring those two dimensions of life together, they're actually one dimension when you bring them together on, on what I call life on the Mobius strip. But when you, when you actually bring those two together, only then does the world and our relation to it and what we can do in it become clear. Because... Whatever is inside of us is constantly co-creating the world around us. And the world around us is constantly feeding back to us in ways that, that either help form or deform us, ourselves. And so that, that combination of the macrocosm of the big world and how it works and the microcosm of us and how we're working in the world seems absolutely critical to me. And that's what I've been reaching for in, in every subject I've ever written about, whether it's democracy or education or aging um, or community or leadership or spirituality itself. Um, I've never wanted to end up in the, either the narcissism of the little story or the overwhelming magnitude of the big story. You know, yeah. you can get lost either place. You can get lost in narcissism. You can also get lost in grandiosity. Um, and it seems to me that the sweet spot is at the intersection of those two, where we begin to, to find a way of becoming life-giving, creative uh, actors in the world, because everything external comes from what's in us. 
And what's external then blows back on us to either rob us of our identity and integrity um, or to reinforce it if we hold it in the right way. I love that, you know, there's the thread, you know, whether it's democracy or spirituality or education, that this living an undivided life and that that phrase is something that, that, you know, that you kind of coined and it, it actually articulated something for me to live an undivided life, that... Um, that the inner and outer are always on a Mobius strip, that the sacred and the ordinary, are, there's no really, there's no line actually between them. Right. And, and that's one of the things I love about your work, because your music and your poetry lift all of that up so very clearly from a different, in a different modality than, than prose, reaching different, I don't know, channels in yeah. us than, than one can reach in prose. But, but yeah, absolutely. I, I think um, that this, this is a crucial intersection, the, the inner and the outer, the little story and the big story. And, and we, need, we need to keep working it. The undivided life for me, of course, and I know this is true for your work as well. And I think, you know, one of the reasons that our partnership and our friendship have have meant so much to us is that we're we work sort of the same street corners as it were <laughs> uh with in, in different modalities spiritual panhandling right there <laughs> right, right. <laughs> we stand in those intersections you know sometimes uh-huh. there's a minor collision there but yeah <laughs> with the world but but uh, you know, we poke our heads in people's window, car windows, and say, "You know, can I wash your windshield? Kind of clarify your vision a little, or whatever." Um, I should I should back off of that path pretty quickly here. <laughs> but no risk, no gain. So, but I, you know, I, I just I I think that part of the resonance between our work is that we both find a lot in the little stories and in yeah. the ordinariness of life. And we both understand that, as William Blake said, you can see the universe in a grain of sand. So if you look properly, deeply and well into that little story, that grain of sand, you're going to see a much larger uh, configuration of human and natural reality. And that, that, to me, that, that keeps things really exciting. And it also means that... Um, that you know these these themes are iterative. You you keep returning to them and yeah. in different ways and playing them in different. I don't know. You're the musician. Tonalities or or, or harmonic structures or or or, or, or whatever. Um, you know, you, it's, you're ringing the changes on the same theme in different contexts and at different times. So I sometimes say when people say, "Oh, you've written ten books. That's amazing," and I'll I'll say, "Well, it's highly possible that I've written one book ten times <laughs> <laughs> because it, it does sometimes feel that way, and that's okay. That's not I'm, I don't feel awkward about that. I do think that we have themes and questions that return. You know, and I, I think as writers, but also I think for for a lot of human beings, when they're when they're addressing the uh, the story of their lives as as it unfolds, 
you know, there are certain questions that return, certain themes that return, you know, what do I love beyond words or measure? When I pull back the layers of all this stuff, what's at the heart of my life? Um, and if this is what I love, why is there not that much of it in my life right now? You know, it's like, there's, there's just a, there's a lot of questions that we return to. What does it mean to live an undivided life? Exactly. What does it mean? You yeah, know, we exactly. Just, when those questions return at different points of our life, we ask them with new eyes, with new experience for what's happening right now. Absolutely. I'm, I'm glad I picked that piece up because that that's important to me, that, that things do change over time. They take different shapes and forms, not only because we're at a different time in our life, but because the world is at a different time in, in the world's life. And, you know, I don't think there's any better example than the last... 18 months, two years of pandemic reality as, yeah. as a global a global phenomenon. So I, I think love is, a, is an important word here, that that, that which you love, you, you want to understand. Um, and um, this bafflement that I speak of is really is really based in love. I mean, I, I don't I don't want to walk around in the world, any more than I absolutely have to, as if it were a, a massive fog uh, yeah. or a hall of yeah. mirrors. Yes. And there's enough of that that's just, you know, comes through daily experience. But I, I want to be curious about it in a loving way. Yeah. You know, it's, I, 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 I have no interest in defeating the world. That's, that's real ego grandiosity. But I'm very interested in Understanding the world in, in, through curiosity, active curiosity, in a way that helps me find a life-giving way into that world and into engagement with with other people. So I sometimes feel like you know love and curiosity are really important survival tools and really tools of creativity. Um, and you know, healing and and rebuilding tools, which is which are two of the great creative acts in life, I think, um, and which really equip us to live life fully and to live it well. And this is not to rule out. And we've you and I have talked about this often, Carrie, and sometimes on this podcast. This is not to rule out emotions like anger, which yes. have their rightful place in everything we're, we're talking about. I, I, I've often said that, uh, that especially to readers of some of my spiritual writings who, who I guess believe that anger is not suited to a, quote, spiritual person, which it sort mm. of defies all the traditions I know where in those traditions, uh, people called prophets got very, very angry uh, yeah. in a way that actually did something I would never do, which is to call the Lord's wrath on you know all of you and the horses you rode in on. Um, that's not. <laughs> I can get cocky, but I don't get that cocky. Um, <laughs> so so uh, anger has its role, but but only if you can harness that energy on behalf of something that's life-giving and creative. It's an energy, like any other human energy. Curiosity is an energy. Love is an energy. All of these need to be harnessed towards that which gives life rather than deals death. Um, 
you know, to me, it's pretty simple. I'm 82 now, and I have to ask a lot of discernment questions about what choice do I make at this turn in the road, at this crossroads. We've, we make those all our lives. But it's, it's increasingly clear to me that the only good criterion for choice is what is life-giving for me and other people and what isn't. Um, if, it, if it can't pass that test, I shouldn't be doing it. I love that. Is it life-giving for myself and for other people um, as, a, as a litmus? You know, what you're talking about is showing up in this life, showing up in your writing, but showing up in this life with your whole story, your authentic story, your human story. You know, it's like, um, you know, that idea, oh, you know, if, it's a, if, if this is a spiritual story, nobody gets angry, nobody gets hurt, nobody makes mistakes, nobody is really a jerk, you know what I mean? It's just like, <laughs> um, you know, or this idea uh, um, of showing up in this really vulnerable and human way. I think... I think that's one of the things that I have loved about your work and loved about our interaction as as human beings and creative, you know, colleagues. Um, that you kind of show up as, as you, and um, and that you have this really, you know, I really appreciate this sense of humor about it because sometimes humor can help when it stings. It's mm -hmm. like, oh, I was really human there, mm -hmm. um, really human, and then. Um, you know, then the sense of, yeah, aren't we human? And mm -hmm. aren't we funny? And I'm funny. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you know, I was like, there I go again. You know, so, um, but I, I've really appreciated that about, you know, you uh, present this thread, this thread of trying to live an undivided life, of the inner and outer uh, in such a, a really wonderfully human not so much heroic but human well way. thank you and and back at you you know again i think that is a a basis for friendships at least in my life um, that people are willing to be present to each other that way i feel very lucky to have grown up in a family that um where i was blessed with a, a sense of humor uh from my yeah. parents my grandparents we laughed a lot, and, and we were taught very clearly, that, you know, you, you never laugh at other people. You laugh yeah. with other people. Yeah. And if you got to laugh at something, laugh at yourself, um, because that can be very, very healthy. And I have found it so in, in, in my life. I mean, in the moment of pain or suffering or profound anger, it's hard to laugh at yourself, but 24 hours later, you often can, and you should, um, you know, at, at your excess or at whatever carried you to the point where you forgot the question, how do I harness this emotion on behalf of something that's life-giving? Laughter can actually bring you back to that. Laughter can, in that sense, be redemptive. And I remember in the Upanishads, it turns out, um, there's a, a saying that I have always loved. I read it many years ago. Um, there are three things that are real, God, human folly, and laughter. The first two are beyond our comprehension, so we must do what we can with the third. 
And I really love that, that, you know, God and human folly are beyond our comprehension, and that includes my folly. So let's do what we can with, with the laughter uh, that comes as a gift between us. I love that quote from the Upanishads, but uh, I also, it reminds me of something that you have said to me uh, uh, upon more than one occasion, and it's, if you are full of yourself, it is impossible to be full of yourself, <laughs> which is kind of, you know, the Upanishads uh, a la Parker Palmer. But I, 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 lo- I love that. <laughs> well, I didn't know I was a channel for that great tradition, but thank you. I'll, I'll take what I can get. Um, so, you know, I, I don't know quite where I came up with the line you just quoted, but I, my best memory is that I was in an audience situation, you know, live, face-to-face, the way it used to be in the old world. And um, I, somebody, I think, kind of challenged me a bit on what, what, what is this about being, you know, fully yourself? And so he, this person was asking for a rationalization or a justification. And the first thing that came to mind was, well, if you're fully yourself, it's impossible to be full of yourself. And I, I just liked it the minute it came out of my mouth. Um, I'm not sure I ever wrote it anywhere, but it, I just think it's true because if you're fully yourself, you're, you, know, you have embraced everything about yourself, everything that is possible to embrace. You've embraced the shadow and the light. You've embraced your strengths and the pitfalls that lie right on the other side of your strengths. You've embraced you know, your successes and your failures, etc., etc. And if you're really embracing all of that, it's really hard to have an inflated ego. Um, or, or even, and if you're holding it in public in a way that says, well, you know, here I am, for better or for worse, take it or leave it, this is me, what you see is what you get, then it's really impossible to have the kind of insecurity about being yourself in the world that that leads people to have an inflated ego uh, in in many instances. I mean, I've often been impressed by the fact that some of the most arrogant people I've ever met turn out to be also the most insecure. Mm-hmm. And, and I think yeah. the insecurity comes a lot from trying to tuck stuff about themselves away and fearing that if anyone ever found out, they'd be, you know, cast into the outer darkness. So, yeah, so that that notion uh, makes a lot of sense to me that it being full of yourself is a path to not being full of yourself, at least most of the time. Which is kind of a bit of uh, no regrets, you know, kind of, you say, befriending your mistakes. And, I, and I've always liked that phrase as well, to befriend our own mistakes, that there's something in our own humanness and our mistakes um, that we can laugh at, but also we can learn from if we're, we're uh, willing to, to, to be, befriend them. Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I've, you know, Carrie, when I began the, in the very first chapter of the prelude to the courage to teach, I remember clearly... Uh, having an instinct about how to start that book. And, and basically it was, uh, th- there are days when teaching is the best thing on earth for me. I feel like I was born to do it. It's an absolute thrill and joy. I, jo- I, I, I 
uh, grow from it. I engage with it. It brings, it gives me life. And there are other days when I'm actively looking around for a job that I know how to do because <laughs> I, I, I fall on my face so often and so visibly and so publicly. Um, and I think that alone has drawn people to the book who, who are real, <laughs> real yeah. you know, real people with real lives and who know that the same is true for them. So there's there's always something about r- revealing, you know, our limitations that I think draws other people in. Um, it's it's the it's the Leonard Cohen thing in many ways. Uh, forget your perfect offering, ring the bells that still can ring. There's a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. So that's that's how the light gets in. Yeah, and I I I think. Um, that's been this another one of those wonderful red threads that have gone that's gone through all your work. This idea of um, there's a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. You know, it's it's this sense of okayness. You know, not that it always feels great right in process. You know, it's like oh, I really made a bad mistake here. Um, and those and that can be really hard, especially if the mistake affected someone else. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, having this sense of this is my chance to actually look at a growing edge, to look at, um, you know, if I befriend this mistake, uh, what might I learn from it? Right. M- most of us walk around with broken hearts a lot of the time. Uh, it just kind of yeah. comes with being human. And certainly these days with mass deaths from COVID-19 and wars and rumors of wars and um, just a long list of things that we all know and can name racial injustice, economic injustice. There's so many reasons for heartbreak, both personal and, and public. And I've known my share of all of that during my 82 years. Uh, you know, who hasn't? Um and so it's it's long been with me that I have to find some way to understand heartbreak that's more life-giving than death-dealing. Mm-hmm. Because if if I don't find a frame in which to hold heartbreak or any, any other recurring experience in human life creatively, then it's going to do me in one way or the other. And as you know, Carrie, I, you think this way too. Um, we've talked about it many times, I'd long ago understood that there were at least two ways for the heart to break. One, one is that it shatters into a thousand pieces and kind of lies scattered around on the floor of our lives, um, and we can't put it back together. There's no super glue that will, that will do that job for us. And sometimes in the course of exploding, it's the heart is hurled like a fragment grenade at the ostensible source of its pain. Yeah. You know, so it's those Republicans or those Democrats or those this or those that. We always have ways of drawing the line between friend and enemy, and the heart goes over the line like a fragment grenade in an attempt to wound or maim or kill uh, whoever's on the other side. It doesn't take a split second of thinking to know that that's a death-dealing way to live your life. And 
I don't want to live that way to the extent humanly possible. The other way the heart can break, however, is it can break into largeness. It can break into capacity. It can break open rather than apart. And Mm -hmm. what I what I love about that notion is that I I do not find it airy fairy at all. (laughs) I don't find that to to live in the realm of wishful thinking. Wouldn't it be nice if that were so? Because it is so. And in the course of everyday life, if your eyes are open to it, you can see a lot of folks who are going through that alchemical process of allowing their hearts to break open rather than apart. The quickest example at hand has always been for me, folks who lose to death the dearest and nearest person or persons in their lives. And, you know, for a long time, as we all know, with an experience like that, you go underground. You you go into grieving. Um, if, If you don't do it literally, you do it privately. And it, it feels like you will never be whole again because this critical element of your life is now, is now gone. But so often people of that sort who've had that kind of experience one day emerge and are kind of taken by surprise by the fact that they've emerged as bigger people. They've, mm-hmm. they've emerged yeah. with more capacious hearts. They've They've emerged as more compassionate human beings, more generous human beings, more prepared to take in with hospitality others and their needs and their suffering, not not in spite of their own suffering, but precisely because of it. Yeah. Precisely because of it. And, you know, I, I lived with that thought for a long time, and it kept proving itself true. And then I got curious about how does that happen for some people and and not others? And I, I started to become aware that the people who who emerge with broken open hearts are people who, for the most part, practiced suppleness of heart or practiced exercising the heart through through the course of their lives, whenever they had an opportunity and as best they could. They they practiced exercising that muscle. So this, the little deaths of our lives, the, the failures, the, the temporary losses, you know, not, not the big blows, but the smaller blows, um, were, were taken in rather than um, being avoided. Uh, yeah. they, they did the grief work about the job they lost or the opportunity that blew away or the failure that brought them down for a while. They, they did the grief work around that, and, and like a runner's muscle, when it's exercised and then stressed, the heart won't snap, won't, won't break. It will expand and it will stretch. I, I think, I, I, I spend a lot of time these days at age 82 thinking about the importance of keeping my heart supple, um, yeah. because I need to. And we, I think we all need to. Um, I love that. I mean, I, 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 um, I think about that a lot, the broken open heart and um, the, the expansion of the heart instead of the contraction of the heart. 
you know, with the, th the small things that happen daily and uh, periodically, and also how that affects us uh, when something, you know, quite large, like you're, t you're describing, happens. Mm -hmm. So uh, I really have, that's given me language for something. And I, I really appreciate that. So often, Parker, your work has given me language for something that I kind of knew deep down, but I didn't quite know how to say yet. And so yeah. I, I've always really appreciated uh, you being able to articulate something. Uh, well, like I have to say, Carrie, that coming from a really master wordsmith like you, <laughs> that's high, high praise, and I deeply appreciate it. I want to say in return, not only do you do the same kind of things with language, but when you do it with my language, you bring a whole new dimension to it uh, by embedding it in a poem or a song, um, which I just, I love your stuff, as they say. Uh, I could go totally fanboy here. and <laughs> Well, we could both do that for like maybe an hour and a half or more. I mean, I think we have in private, but you know. <laughs> but it, you know, I've in, said, in, I've said so many ways, times, my friend. I, yeah. I've said so many times that the, the blessed alchemy of getting this opportunity to work with you over these years has, has been to, to see the transformations that happen when two people who practice different crafts, different arts, who yeah. have different skill sets, work with uh, intersecting material and expand on it um, for each other, but especially for the larger world. And, you know, it's, I, I've said to so many people that I know, I said, you know, Carrie has redeemed email for me. And, and they, they've said, uh, what does that mean? How, what, what are you talking about? Because I write about? letters and not like quickie, <laughs> like little emails. Yeah. 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 But I, I said, well, I'd, I'd respond to an email from her with a thought or two. And the next thing I knew, it, it she sent me an MP3 with a, with a song <laughs> on it that she had had done up in, in uh, whatever that software is. <laughs> And uh, it, it's amazing. Like, okay, those are some words I said, but they, they sure have taken on depth and dimension that weren't there when I said them. So thank you for that. Well, I, I, I so appreciate uh, on so, so many levels. Um, talking about different kinds of art forms, too. You know, uh, many people know you as uh, an author who, from your different books uh, of, of prose writing, but that... You know, you're also a quite passionate poet as well, that you write really lovely poetry. And every now and then, that's one of those gifts that I get an email. Hey, I'm working on a poem, and you'll send it to me or text it to me. And uh, it's always like this incredible gift. And there's a poem called um, The Poem I Would Have Writ that uh, the first time you sent it to me, um, it just knocked me down. And it, it really has a lot of uh, relationship to what we're talking about, the broken open heart and befriending mistakes, being able to laugh. I mean, it, there's so many of the threads that we've been talking about this podcast in that poem. Would you be open to reading uh, that poem? Sure, I would. Thank you. Thanks for the opportunity. I am going to ask a special favor, however, before I do so, and that is would you, would you be willing to after the reading is over and the commentary, whatever you want to do with it, 
Would you be willing to ask me for one more very short poem? It'll take about 30 seconds, but it's kind of, this is a yin and yang thing, you know? I write some good <laughs> ones, and then I write some that are otherwise. <laughs> and there's one I'm famous for that's otherwise that I'd like to get on the record here. Okay. I think I know that one. <laughs> you I perhaps you might do. have know what poem you're talking about. <laughs> so if I can do that later, I'll do this one now. Okay. Foreshadowing, everybody. Um, <laughs> yeah, right. Stay tuned. So, so the, the, the poem I would have read, and, and there's a little story behind this poem, too. There is. I, I think I was probably, it was probably about 40 years ago when I was reading Henry David Thoreau. I, I wasn't reading Walden. I was reading a, a Day on the Merrimack and Concord Rivers, I think is the full title of the book. Um, and... In the middle of that book, in, in this great flow of prose that Thoreau always writes with, I found this little couplet that just intrigued me. I, I was already into my sense that maybe I was a writer. And in the middle of the page, he plants this little couplet. My life has been the poem I would have writ, but I could not both live and utter it. My life has been the poem I would have writ, but I could not both live and utter it. I just thought that was a, that's a fascinating thought because yeah. I've often seen, and I know you see this too, I've, I think about uh, us and everybody sort of writing a life as they go. They may not be writers, but they're laying down a record uh, with their actions and 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 their words, whether they're poetic or prosaic, we are we're writing a life. I guess Mary Catherine Bateson had a, has a book on composing a life, yeah. and it's the same I think idea. So we're doing it as we go. And I thought, well, this little couplet might yield a book. And for several years, I tried to write a book titled "The Poem I Would Have Written," and it kept falling apart on me. And hmm. I'd almost given up when one day that book became a poem with one, two, three, four, five stanzas. And I'll read it right now. The poem I would have writ with the epigraph from Thoreau. My life has been the poem I would have writ, but I could not both live and utter it. Those gentle whispers in the womb become insistent when you're born. You listen, for the day will come when you must speak words too. That's how we make our way across this trackless landscape called the world. But how, and what to say, and what does saying do? The first words are the hardest. Later, words come easily. You learn to speak the language of your wants and needs, looking for safe passage, reaching out for friends, finding work to do, allaying fears, healing wounds, offering chance on chance to give love and receive. Sometimes words escape your lips in ways you soon regret, or appear out of the blue, begging to have life breathed into them by you. Then you learn that first words aren't the hardest. The hardest are the last. There's so much you want to say, 
but time keeps taking time and all your words away. How to say amid this flood of gratitude and grief, thank you, or how beautiful, how grand, or I don't know how I survived, or I was changed forever the day we two joined hands. As you reach for your last words, you realize this is it, this ebbing tide of language called your life, words trailing into silence, returning to the source, this unfinished poem you would have writ had you not been awash in wonder, grateful to be living it. Ah, Parker, thank you. I, I, I love that poem. There's so much in it. And this idea of our lives, that we're writing our lives, every stanza, every chapter, each word, and how we move through our days. The idea, um, people speak in poetry all the time. Have you ever noticed that? They do. They, you know, people will just be talking to you, and, and I'll be listening, and it's like, oh, I, I want to write that down, because mm -hmm. people always, and they don't think of themselves as writers or poets, but if you listen... People are speaking in poetry all yeah. the time. Yeah, they are. And some lives are just poetry in motion, as, as they say of professional athletes. Yeah. And poetry and in, in how they move through their days. Poetry and how they parent their children. Poetry. And, um, you know, so I, I really, and I love this, you know, like it's, it's also an, a, a, a nod to your life of words. Mm-hmm from your first book on aerodynamics to, uh, to each book that came afterwards. Um, you know, it's, it's a nod to that. It's also mm. a nod to what's behind the words, beneath the words. The words beneath the words, always. Oh, yeah. Thank you. So I just love it. Thank you so much for reading that poem, Parker. Of course. Maybe we can post it so people can see it more clearly. Yes. Yeah, so we'll do that on the website. Uh, so th those who... Um, Go to our, our website um, for the podcast, can, can see the poem there, um, or just go there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Great. So I think we're, we're getting close to the end of our conversation, though I could, just, I could just talk about this for a long time, and I've just so enjoyed this conversation today, Parker. Do we have um, time for that other poem, Carrie? Oh, yes, yes. Yeah, yeah, good, because, you know, that was the contract. <laughs> so, so I've enjoyed it so much too and I'm so grateful for the opportunity um, so a lot of people have said nice things to me about the poem I would have written they've said other kinds of things about my winter poem my snow poem mm. um, which is a poem that I post on my Facebook author page every winter when the first snow falls here in Madison, Wisconsin, which it inevitably does. It's, you know, it's September 22 right now. It might be tomorrow. Who knows? But I always put this up on my Facebook page, and I always say, I've, I've had a lot of requests about this poem, but I'm going to post it again this year anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so so this, is, this is my chance to say it aloud to an international audience of poetry mm -hmm. lovers. So this poem is called it. very simply Snow, and I think sometimes, you know, this simple, short, 
one-word titles and brief poems really, really carry the message. So it goes this way. Snow is the title by me. Uh, (laughs) Sorry. Snow, 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 snow. Why does it always come and go? It hardly makes a sound, although sometimes I can hear it if I listen real good. End of poem by Parker J. Palmer. (laughs) You know. (laughs) Yeah. You know. (laughs) I I never had a chance to ask Mary Oliver what she thought of that one, but maybe that's a good thing. I'm sure she she would have said, that's something. (laughs) Yes. I I know she would have had thoughts. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Well, Something that we do with all our guests is uh, the last question we ask them is, what's on your growing edge? So I should ask you, Parker, Palmer, what is on your growing edge? Well, I think the easy way out is to say, uh, a couple of years ago, I wrote a whole book about that called On the Brink of Everything. (laughs) So (laughs) there's a compendium of answers to that question available in that book. But... um, I think I think at the moment, it, it, it I find that aging has always been, um, you know, potentially on a collision course with other important parts of my life. When I got into my early sixties, I started realizing, oh, this aging thing that I'm feeling more vividly now is on a bit of a collision course with my vocation. You know, with all the traveling, with the multitasking, yeah. with the stuff that. It just gets harder to do as you get older. And so I started doing a lot of discernment around that, um, about how to avoid the collision, and instead how to find some graceful dance between aging and vocation. And I'm grateful for you know the, the uh, distant early warning system that was saying to me, work on this, Parker, because you don't want to wait till the last minute. And I think that's allowed me to, you know, move into, uh, to continue my vocation, but in a more balanced and graceful way than trying to do the whole kielbasa uh, at a stage in life when when I became less capable of that. So I think for the, at the moment, it's kind of like, I mean, and I feel very privileged to even be able to ask this question, of course. Um, What's what's the best physical arrangement for the next steps in my life when the the physical, the the sheer physical, may may well become more challenging for me? Um, And so that, you know, that has to do with schedules and ways of living, habitats, uh, preparing in a material way, as best I'm able to live in a way that accommodates the realities of old age. One of the things I've said in the book, it's a story I love to tell, is that one evening when I was, I think, in my turning 60, I was with a group of people who were teasing me about getting old, having been part of a generation that, that said, um, never trust anybody over 30. You know, yeah. So they were saying, I guess, Parker, now you're doubly untrustworthy. and uh they they one of them finally got serious and said so how how do you want to uh, you know conduct this the journey over the next 
10, 20, 30 years, whatever you're given. And at that moment, we were sitting in a second floor room that had a west-facing, large west-facing window, and there was this beautiful sunset happening outside. And uh, I looked out the window and I said, see that setting sun? Not fully down yet, it's going down, and look how gorgeous it is. Hmm. As it reflects in the clouds and in the sky, uh, it's just throwing off beauty. And I said, uh, if that sun were suddenly to reverse its course and rise in the sky, we'd all run out of here screaming, apocalypse. It's happening before our eyes. The world is coming to an end because it's, it's unnatural. So I said, I, my, my image for aging is that I want to go down, as it were, with the grace of a setting sun. I want to collaborate with the natural process rather than fight it in any way. Um, and that's an image that I've held ever since that time for 20 plus years as how I want to make this trip. Um, so far, so good. The normal glitches mm -hmm. and fallbacks and, you know, uh, failures to live into my own image. But it's been a very, uh, an image that has given me great guidance and I'm grateful for it. It's a beautiful image, though I have to admit, I'm knowing you personally, I'm rolling my eyes just a little tiny bit here because you still uh, do more than a lot of 35-year-olds I know. But <laughs> 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 that artists kind of never actually retire. Um, yeah. But the image of the setting sun, of doing it like that, how colorful, how beautiful. Thank you. How bright and vibrant. Yeah. I think it's a beautiful way to, to close our, our podcast today. Thank you for that image. Thank you so much. It's been a joy. You've been listening to The Growing Edge with Carrie Newcomer and Parker Palmer. Thank you for joining us today, and I hope you'll check out our next episode. And don't forget to visit our website, newcomerpalmer.com, newcomerpalmer.com, so you can join in the conversation, too. And now we have a favor to ask. If you like today's show, rate us and leave a review on iTunes. It's the best way to help us reach new audiences and to bring more voices into this conversation. All the music you heard on today's show was written by our own Carrie Newcomer, and much gratitude to Gary Walters for performing the song, The Clean Edge of Change. And wild appreciation to Allison Quantz for creative envisioning, direction, and production, and because she's like the noonday sun.